Welcome to the creative process. Today, Mia Funk interviews award-winning author Neil Gaiman, known for his creative works including Oceans at the End of the Lane, Coraline, Sandman, and Good Omens. Gaiman has also been recognized for his contributions to graphic novels, comic books, film, and television. He has also lent his talents as an instructor and patron of various organizations such as the Bookend Trust, the Open Rights Group, and the Science Fiction Foundation. In this interview, Mia talks with Neil about his previous works, exploring the aspects of his life that contribute to his writing style. Without further ado, let's turn things over to Mia Funk. Uh, you just finished, uh, you've just written the, the Sandman uh, prequel. What are you working on now at the moment? I'm just, um, I'm, I'm wrapping things up prior to getting into a novel. So uh, this week I'm going to write um, a, a little introduction for a Terry Pratchett book called Mort, mm. which will mostly be about remembering Terry and looking back at him and the early days of our friendship. And then I'm going to write a an introduction to the Penguin uh, science fiction fantasy line of a core line of, of six books that they feel that everybody should read. Oh, right. And that will be interesting because uh, they gave me their list of books and, and I can see no commonalities between them. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out rereading for myself, looking at threads. And then when that's done, I'm wrapping up a, a BBC script. And then I'm going to start a novel. Great. Uh, so do you have, like, I'm just wondering about your energies. Like, do you actually have a clone that you are doing who's doing the extra work? Because it's amazing. It's so impressive. Oh, uh, you know what, what's, what's funny is I, as a young writer, I got to hang around with people like Terry Pratchett. Mm. And, and I got to work with a writer called Kim Newman. And I would watch those guys work, and I'd go, okay, they are prolific. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't think I'm prolific in the same sense of, you know, I can turn out my X thousand words every day. I'm, I, I had a baby. I didn't yeah. do the work, but, but we had a, a baby September the 16th. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've done so little in the way of writing, emailing, talking to other human beings. Mostly what I've been doing is playing with the baby. Changing a lot of nappies. And and, and starting, now just starting to feel guilty. You know, there oh. was, I've, I've, what have I done since the baby was born? I've, I've did a, uh, I've assembled, edited, and done a sort of big final edit on a collection of my short, of my non-fiction. Okay. No, it's still quite a lot. You in your off time is like some writers, um, you know, in their their full time. I was talking. I guess you did a conversation um, with Juno Diaz, and he talks about how s slow he's, you know, he he, yep. he labors over things. But um, no, it seems like quite a lot. I was interested. You you're talking about Terry Pratchett, and I guess you know you you began really with him. Do you want to share some memories? Yes. I I mean, 
I was fascinated because the two people who I, as, as a young writer, knew best, who were sort of established writers, were Douglas Adams, because I'd written the, um, I, I wrote a book called Douglas Adams, Don't Panic, Douglas Adams yes, and the yes. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and got to spend time with and work with Douglas. And I was friends with, with Terry. And what absolutely fascinated me was they, they couldn't have been more opposite. Douglas hated writing. And he was incredibly good at it, but he didn't like doing it. And he'd do it when he was backed into a corner and he'd do it when he had to. And he would expend energy in not writing. Okay. Which in some ways it was really good because he became, you know, he'd, he'd create computer games or he'd, he'd, he'd become a, um, there, there were points where, you know, he, he'd do weird projects with computers and learn all about computers and things like that in order to not write because yeah. the act of writing was painful. Um, and there was a point where he had to be locked in a hotel room for three or four weeks by his publisher to get a book out on time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they'd solicited it. Everything was ready and they didn't have a book and he was halfway through and he'd given up. So they just locked him in and he'd pass pages under the door. And, and you know, Sonny Mehta would sit outside watching videos. I think Victor Hugo did something else with his clothing. <laughs> 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 he wasn't allowed to have any, just so he'd finish. Yeah. I, rem I remember that story. And, and so that was Douglas. Terry was the other way around. Terry, you could have, you know, you would have had to lock him in a hotel for three weeks with no paper to stop him writing a book. He was happy in his head and he was happy in his head writing stuff down. He was happy making stuff up. I'm, you know, I, I definitely spent the first, you know, 48, 49 years of my life happier in my head. Mm -hmm. But I was never, but I, I always loved making things. I, I always felt like I was real and changing things and doing something sensible when I was writing. But I never felt, I never felt prolific. And now what's weird is, is I can look at the shelves and shelves of, of stuff that I've created. Yeah. And, and it came well, out of you. Well, I, I, you know, and I don't know that I'm prolific, but I, I but I've never stopped. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, except maybe to change some nappies right now. I like making stuff up. And I like being all over the place. So yeah. sometimes, you know, I, I know that people would probably be happier with my career if I just stuck to one thing. No, I think that. you, I mean, for me, I mean, the breadth, I think for, you give enough for each of your fan bases. So I think that's, that's great. So as a number of questions arise, as you, you spoke about um, changing nappies and you speaking about this being like a, an idle period. But I think that... Perhaps I liked uh, the ocean at the end of the lane. Perhaps you're accruing material in this idle period that'll be a more feeling-based novel, or I don't know. I, I think that's probably true. I think the next the next book is probably going to be a running around book because I haven't done one of those in a long time, and I think it'll be fun. I want to do something like Neverwhere, maybe right. even a sequel to Neverwhere, just because I want I want fun stuff. Oh, that's um, nice. I think your fans were waiting for that, yeah? It's, it's one of those things where I feel like, I, well, if I want it, they should want it. But, but, I mean, Ocean at the End of the Lane was absolutely feelings-based. Mm -hmm. And that was probably mostly feelings-based because it started off 
as a short story that was going to be a present to my wife and trying to explain bits of my childhood to her trying to trying to to trying to explain how not the facts but what it was like to be me mm. when i was 7 and she and she was away and i missed her and she was off making an album in melbourne australia and i was in in in, in florida so I thought I'll make I'll write her a story, and I'll just write her a little short story about that time, and I'll send it to her, and it'll be a gift. Mm -hmm. So no, it's just so lovely. It was very touching, and even though you've like written about families, I guess in Sandman families, and but um, yeah, it just felt very personal. I like that. So I'm I'm waiting for the continuation of that. Uh, I suppose so. You're doing a running around novel. I want to talk a bit about American Gods. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, um, it's fascinating, it's very playful, you know, you're, you're taking these gods from different periods, you know what it is, but I have to talk for the interview. Uh, but it has this, at the heart of it, even though it's funny, it has this humour and it's set in a contemporary time period, it seems to have uh, underneath it the, uh, the philosophical insight, you know, that we are, you know, we're living a contemporary time period, but actually we're repeating this, you know, we always have echoes of the past. And I was wondering with that, what, what, how do you proceed in your process? Do you start with a theme? that you want to then have to find characters, or you start with a character? Um, yes, both of those things, um, and sometimes more. What I start with is enough, mm -hmm. enough to start, enough to get going. With American Gods, I had, I'd written, I had an idea about characters. It, st it started with characters. I had, somewhere in my head, there were a couple of people meeting on a plane. And one of them seemed to be an old grifter, and the other one had just got out of prison. And that was all I knew about them. And I, I thought about them. I, I had been doing a lot of reading about American folklore at the time, but didn't know that how that was going to fit in. I, I was feeling very weird. I moved to America, was having an immigrant experience that didn't seem to be something that I'd read about in fiction. Okay. The idea of being an immigrant to America and, and dealing with this big, weird country that seemed to have no interest or respect in where you were before, you know, which was very different to, to England, where, you know, if you're, if you're Greek and you move to England, you're now Greek in England. And the same is actually weirdly true of Canada. If you're, you know, whatever culture you bring with you to Canada, you're, you are that thing. And, and you're Canadian, but you're also Lebanese or, or Ukrainian. With America, it felt like what you brought with wasn't wasn't important. It was as if there was a lack of memory or a lack of attention to anything. But they're obsessed and, with the new, maybe. I don't know. Oh, I think the, the obsession with the new and the obsession with what they were mm -hmm. both fascinated me. So so they're sitting there in my head as as huge things. And then... I went to Iceland, it's in Reykjavik, and wandering around Reykjavik on a Sunday when everything's closed, you know, a day away from, I'm, I'm really on my way to Norway, but we had a stopover and I took a day in Reykjavik. And I'm sleepless and I wander into a tourist exhibition and I see a little tabletop diorama of the travels of Leif Erikson mm. and showing them going to Vinland going to Newfoundland and coming back. And I thought, I wonder if the gods took, I wonder if they took their gods with them. 
Mm-hmm. And suddenly it was as if I had a flashlight because uh, I went, okay, that's that's who those characters are and that's who this is and that's what this story is about and I can do something that's all about the relationship between old and new, between culture. I can talk about memory. I can talk about what America is. I can do all of this stuff. And now and I have my characters and I have my, my, my story and I have my theme. And, and I knew what was great about American Gods, which is what is great about Sandman, which is what is great with most of the things that I've done that I've done right, was I'm going into them not actually knowing what I think. I'm going into them to find out what I think. Mm-hmm. Right. You um, know, for me, a writing writing fiction should be, in some way, a voyage of discovery. You mm-hmm. you assume that the writing part of yourself mm-hmm. is smarter and bigger than the human part of yourself, and that the writing part of yourself actually is is competent to deal with everything and we'll find out what the things are and, and for me that's the that's the difference between your first draft and your second draft mm-hmm. your first draft you're figuring it out the whole yes. way and the second draft you read the first draft and you go okay actually these are the themes this is what i'm saying therefore anything that doesn't help that i can lose and i can add stuff in that buttresses that mm-hmm. and in terms of drafts then um I'm wondering, do you ever have a fear of overworking? Or do you ever have a fear, because you say that you know you, you throw away things that have been, are extraneous, but sometimes there's something quite lovely in that beginning process. Yeah, keep going. And, and that it is spontaneous. It's, it's what you're doing when you're improv, right? And mm-hmm. is there ever a fear that you're, through the second, through the polish, that you will lose that, um, I don't know, the childlike beginning? No, I never worry about that. I, I I worry I worry about getting lost in the in the woods mm-hmm. of the story. Uh, but I never worry that a second draft is going to kill what works in the first draft. Mm-hmm. Partly because my you know normally the distance from my first draft to my second draft is is five percent. Okay. You know they're not, but it's but it's the really important five percent. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the the first draft you start somewhere, and you keep going. Oh, the second yeah. draft, you just make sure that everything is what you meant, and mm. and you notice the things that you miss as a reader, and the things that you miss as a reader, you fix as a writer. Right. But I, you know, to, to go back to your original question, do I worry about writing too much? Oh yeah, you know, years ago, I, I wrote a um, a thing called a writer's prayer. Mm-hmm. And um, it's. Let me see if I can find it. That would be nice. It could be extracted. Absolutely. Let me, let me see if I can. Here we go. This was something that I wrote probably in about 1989 wow. when, when I could see there were two futures. And it was a writer's prayer. And I wrote, Oh Lord. Let me not be one of those who writes too much, who spreads himself too thinly with his words, diluting all the things he has to say like butter spread too thinly on his toast or watered milk in some worn-out hotel. But let me write the things I have to say and then be silent till I need to speak. 
O Lord, let me not be one of those who writes too little, a decade man between each tale or more, where every word becomes significant and dread replaces joy upon the page. Perfection is like chasing the horizon. You kept perfection, gave the rest to us. So let me know when I should just move on. But over and above those two mad spectres of parsimony and profligacy, Lord, let me be brave. And let me, while I craft my tales, be wise. Let me say true things in a voice that's true. And with the truth in mind, let me write lies. It's nice. It's, it's very beautiful. I think it's um, a creative writing course in its very compressed form. So... Um... It's touching. I know that you, you've done teaching. You're not teaching at the moment. I'm, I'm taking a year off from teaching to write. Yeah. Uh, because I, I love the teaching. The teaching is really fun. But I, was, I couldn't believe how much time it sucked mm. and how much of my head it sucked. And it's like, okay, then I, if I'm going to get a novel done in a year when I have a new baby, I can't do that and teach as well. Yeah, well, you're teaching now your your baby, so it's it's a one-on-one -on -one course. <laughs> so um, I was interested in, um, as you said, you, you began with the, the Douglas Adams and the Terry Pratchett collaboration, and then you went. What made you go to Sandman? What made you, or was I don't know the exact chronology? What? Oh, the chronology is weird. The chronology is I I what I want to do through most of the mid '80s is comics. I'm fascinated by comics. Comics seems to me a place where people haven't been. Mm -hmm. Novels, for better or for worse for me, feel like cultivated fields. Mm -hmm. You know, you look out over the novels and it's like looking over gorgeous farmland. People have been working it for centuries. People, people smarter than you were out mm -hmm. there, you know, growing their crops and, and things hundreds of years ago and thousands of years ago. Comics felt like the jungle. There were things where I could go, nobody's ever done this. I could go and do stuff nobody's ever done before. And that was really kind of exciting. So that was where I wanted to be. I, I, but I also had to feed myself. So the Don't Panic, the Douglas Adams book was a book that I was writing while doing some comic stuff. I'd been a journalist. And, and I was friends with Terry Pratchett anyway. We used to, we, he'd, he'd phone me up and try ideas out on me talk and then um essentially the sequence was i wrote the douglas adams book after writing the douglas adams book i went you know i could do this this english humor style it's really fun and it's very very easy and i wrote the first five thousand words of what would become good omens and then i sandman happened so i went off and worked on sandman and about a year into Sandman, I got a phone call from Terry Pratchett saying, here, that thing that you sent me, are you doing anything with that? And I said, no. And he said, well, cool. do you want to write it together? And I said, sure. Mm -hmm. So somehow that was, that was actually the, the hardest I think I've ever worked. There have been, been two times when, which were as, as hard. But writing Good Omens while I was also writing Sandman and Books of Magic, that was hard. That was like, you know, you, you do your page count on Sandman and then I do my page count on Books of Magic and then I would write Good Omens and then I would go to sleep and it would be, fun, you know, 
four or five o'clock in the morning and I would get up at one and I would do it all again. The only time I think things ever got that mad were finishing Neverwhere, where I was, I went off to a hotel in Laguna Beach in California, which was just somewhere that my, my travel agent had found for me to go. And I, and I was doing six or 7,000 words a day. And which is something you can always do for one day. But by the end of end of the week, I'm not sure that I was sane anymore. But anyway, so that was so I wrote Good Omens while Sandman was being written, while while all of this stuff was being written. And it was a glorious mad time. And I'm so glad looking back on it that I was 28 and had relatively inexhaustible energy. And and was incredibly good at multi-tracking. Yeah, you know, but because d- I, 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 now I'm not, I'm, I'm nowhere near as good. Oh, sorry, it's your personal life coming in. Um, so, but but it it gets back to that thing that you you were talking about about letting um, the the project take its own shape. When when yeah. you're working at so many things at the same time, there's this kind of intelligence of momentum, which is nice. Um, but you, you were talking, sorry, just going back to that, you were talking about comics and being able to experiment in a younger form, a younger art form. But it seems like in your novels, in you know, the fantasy realm and all of this, that really is open for more, I mean, that's where you have the most freedom, of, of, you know, compared to the conventional novel. I think that's probably true as well. But I, but I think it's also a, a sad truism of fantasy mm-hmm. that on the one hand, the fantastic in literature should be the most the place where you are most free to create. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's true that it is very, very easy for fantasy to become pretty much the most formulaic okay. um, yeah, it's a good form point. of literature. Mm-hmm. And so you have those two things going on at the same time. And that there is always a, a weird kind of tension between mm-hmm. them. I, I could point to a novel like Stardust. And I love Stardust. I'm really fond of Stardust because I know exactly what Stardust was. And for me, Stardust is, it's not even pastiche. It's kind of saying, okay, in the, in the, the, the world of the fantastic, uh, you have pre-Lord of the Rings fantasy and you have post-Lord of the Rings fantasy. And post-Lord of the Rings fantasy is big and huge and bloated and comes in trilogies. And pre-Lord of the Rings fantasy was, it was still literature. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't shelved anywhere that wasn't literature. It was assumed that if an intelligent person wanted to write a novel with fairies in it or witches or the devil, they, they just would. But that it was, you had a specific kind of voice and a specific kind of writing. And that, for me, was what... Um, was what Stardust was. Uh, it's sort of in my head. It's written in about 1924. And I watch fantasy readers get frustrated with it. Some of them love it, but some of them are just like, why is this this thin novel? Why are things alluded to that, that anybody else would turn into a trilogy? Why don't you make it big? Why don't... And, and, oh, I, I and can understand, It's yeah. sort of like, you know, the, the things that they expect to be there aren't. Mm. And... That's exactly so, yeah. what I like about them. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but that's what I like about them too. Yeah. I, I have I don't have much interest in formula fiction. Yeah. I have a lot of interest in using the fantastic mm-hmm. 
in all its ways to illuminate. G.K. Chesterton yeah. talked about, you know, reflecting things. Like fantasy mm-hmm. becomes a mirror and you can look in a mirror and see things in the place that you are that you've never seen before. You're just seeing them from a different angle. Right. And for me, that's what the ocean at the end of the lane was for. Mm-hmm. That's what American Gods is for. You know, that's what even, even something like Neverwhere is, mm-hmm. is saying, look, here is a city and you think you know your city. And let's look at what cities do and what cities are. And let's look at the people who fall through the cracks. And let's talk about the people that you do not see. And, and what is that? What's going on here? Tell me about that. Um, mm-hmm. And you want to start a kind of a weird dialogue almost with your readers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm interested in your motifs. I'm thinking of uh, Neverwhere. Or you're often, you know, you're going into this underworld under, or going through a hole or a crack or... And, I don't know. I think I read somewhere that uh, Alice in Wonderland was an early, you know, one of uh, your favorite books. Could you talk about some of your early influences and echoes? There were definitely, in terms of books that I loved as a kid Mm -hmm. and books that had huge influences on me as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old, as Mm -hmm. a seven-year-old, at the age where you're discovering books and using them in order to understand adults and in order to understand the world that you're in. Probably the most important ones back then would have been Alice in Wonderland mm. and Through the Looking Glass. I remember as a, as a six, seven-year-old actually making my parents buy me a book on chess mm. so right. that I could teach myself enough chess to understand Alice Through the Looking Glass. Okay, yes. Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers. And I, I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I was taken when I was about three to see Mary Poppins, and I loved it with Julie Andrews. I love that too. <laughs> and, and when I was about five years old, I saw the Mary Poppins book, and it had a picture of Julie Andrews on the cover, and I got my parents to buy it for me, and I took it home and discovered a, a Mary Poppins who is so much darker mm. and stranger and deeper than anything in Disney. So I may have read it as a five-year-old, hoping mm. to re-experience the film that I remembered having loved. Mm. But what I found in the Mary Poppins books, which I kept going back to, Mm. was this sort of almost shamanistic world in which Mary Poppins acts as a link between the numinous and the real. And the idea that you're you're in a very real world, you're in this this London cherry tree lane, nineteen thirty-three. Except that if you have the right person with you you can go and, and meet the animals at the zoo. You can go to the stars and dance with the sun. Right. You can, you know, there, there's that you can watch people painting the flowers mm-hmm. in the spring. It just it, it was very, it was it was deep. You know, mm-hmm. Mary Poppins is smart and deep and weird, and P.L. Travers was smart and deep and weird and writing smart, deep, weird fiction. The Narnia books, running mm-hmm. into Narnia. While I loved the stories, yeah. I loved what it did to my head even more. The idea mm-hmm. that anything could be a door. Yeah. The idea that, that the back of a wardrobe could open up mm-hmm. onto a world where it was winter. And that there were other worlds inches away from us became just part of the way that I saw the world. That was how I assumed the world worked. When I was a kid, that was mm-hmm. the world that I saw. So something like Coraline yeah. for me was it was like well this was pr- 
practically autobiographical in the sense that I was stealing buildings. I was stealing doorways even from real places that I had lived. Okay. While yeah. writing a story to entertain my five-year-old daughter mm-hmm. who liked scary stories with, with witches and ghosts and, and, and darkness in and nobody... She would come home and dictate stories in which evil witches would take over and pretend to be her mother and imprison her in the basement with dead children and they'd have to escape. And and, uh-huh. and I thought, well, you know, I should, should read her the kind of stuff that she likes. <laughs> yeah. But nobody yeah. nobody was writing yeah, scary exactly. horror for five, six-year-olds. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll write a, a book. That was how Caroline began. Wow. Yeah, well, it is a delicate line, you know, to write for frightened, uh, frightened five-year-olds. Um, so often, I'm I'm noticing uh, when you're discussing, um, you know, your your, your uh, books, you're using architectural metaphors, um, door, and obviously the metaphors that um, the motifs that appear in your books. I'm wondering, is it was it always language which ignited your imagination was there um obviously because of your comics were did you make things did you it just seems very spatial visual the way you talk about it i think everything i do is is very visual mm-hmm. um for me i loved comics because it seemed like the perfect medium and i felt it was interesting when i was learning to write novels mm-hmm. When I wrote Neverwhere, I definitely felt like I was over-describing everything because I was so used at that point to writing every script that I would write would be a letter to an artist telling them what to draw and telling them what everything looked like. Oh, right, okay. And so when I was writing Neverwhere, I felt like I was doing that and probably doing that too much and what I needed to do was was try and pull back Mm -hmm. and just describe the right things, leave enough room for the reader mm-hmm. to create themselves. So you're sort of in a, in a kind of rather peculiar, you know, just a slightly peculiar world in which there's room for the reader mm-hmm. to bring herself to what you're creating. And if you're going to say, if you're going to describe something, give it that one salient detail. It's, it's like, you know, everybody knows what a tree looks like. So you don't have to describe the tree. Just tell them enough to know why this tree is different from any other tree. Hello, my name is Terry Clark, and I'm an English major studying at St. Louis University. As an aspiring writer, there are a great deal of encouraging and interesting comments and insights that Neil Gaiman has given throughout this interview. What interests me has to do with what he mentions briefly in regard to different types of fantasy. He talks about text being pre-Lord of the Rings and post-Lord of the Rings, describing that some authors differentiate on the idea of how much detail to add to their work. On one hand, you have a style that someone like J.R.R. Tolkien uses, which includes writing every aspect of his world in great detail. The other option is to use a sense of brevity, and allow shorter, more intricate sentences and descriptions to convey a general image while leaving room for the readers to appreciate the text itself. I've had similar discussions with peers about these approaches to writing. Many of us are looking to create massive narrative worlds similar to Tolkien, which leads us to put a lot of effort into the world-building aspect of creating. But I've also studied the art of flash fiction and prose poetry, 
two styles that focus on the importance of ambiguity and often the words themselves. Although you don't use as much language to communicate your image to your audience, it does allow for them to become a bit more attached to your work since their own imaginations must fill in the gaps that you left behind. It is also this ambiguity that creates mystery and intrigue into the inner workings of your creations as well. I'm not sure that one technique is superior to the other. Rather, it is likely the writer themselves and their style that determines whether more or less language is necessary to convey the story. I think that finding that personal preference and balancing it with your writing style is the key to creating a story with your unique tone of voice. Now, let's hear more about Neil Gaiman from our interviewer, Mia Funk. The emotional connect, yeah. Exactly. Um, so and that, to me, was very much what I was trying to do all the way through Ocean at the end of the lane. Mm-hmm. And and I loved what I was able to get away with. I love the fact that I got to write a novel in which almost nobody has names and people tend not even to realize that while they're reading the book. It's mm-hmm. only when they get to the end of the book. And I've, I've seen lots of people reviewing Ocean at the End of the Lane saying it wasn't until I finished the book and went back to write about it that I realized that we never know the narrator's name. Well, that's great. Like, They've become the narrator, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so you brought up actually uh, not a disadvantage or, or something that you picked up from writing notes to your comic book illustrators, the over, maybe making things too detailed. But what were some of the things that you got from writing for television and film that when you went when you returned to novels or stories, what economies of text or what did you pick up? What were what skills? Yeah. The, uh, well, the I'm always pretty much from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to write as if I were paying by the word to be published. Oh, okay. Right. So that that's always gone in there, whether it's mm-hmm. been film or television, whether it's mm-hmm. comics, whether it's novels, and especially short stories. Mm-hmm. I want everything to count. Mm-hmm. I want every word to count. If I'm writing something, even for the tiniest children, mm-hmm. you know, somebody pointed out to me that Tuesday my book for tiny, tiny children, yeah. for, you know, 18-month-olds, has, like, something something like 30 words. It, it's 30 words long or 100 words long or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah. And every word is right, and it's just the right length for, you know, a two-year-old. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, I think what I learned most from writing for television mm-hmm. and film was a willingness to let things change. Okay. Oh, yes, I see, yeah. Revisions, yeah. Revision. The revision mm-hmm. process is one where in comics and in novels and things, I, I, at least initially, tended to be kind of precious. Mm-hmm. When you're getting into the world of films, I remember doing a draft of a film for Robert Zemeckis. And, you know, we, we and sitting there with Bob going over this draft, and he was going, it's really fantastic, it's good, but this... this you know, it seems almost like it will be more interesting if your female lead were actually the baddie. And I, I, you know, if she did this thing, she's tempted here. What if she followed that up? And I was like, I can't do that because it would change the entire film. He was like, well, let's let it change the entire film. And that was kind of in- incredibly liberating. Going, oh, okay. And, and doing another draft and the next draft in which, you know, she 
she had gone over to the dark side. And it, it, I think there was definitely a willingness to take that back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. With me into, you know, into the world of, of books. But it's still true that I think what I love best, what I took back most from film and TV into the world of books is a kind of glorious sense of everybody else can just fuck off, this is my story. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is, is, you know, there's that point where I am immensely proud of The Doctor's Wife, mm-hmm. the Doctor Who episode that I did. I, I think it's a great Doctor Who episode, and it went through at least 11 drafts, and, you know, when I got completely stuck, Stephen Moffat bailed me out at one point when suddenly everything had changed and we'd, we'd moved from one season to another and more characters were alive and it was, you know, and there was a point in there where we, the budget had been slashed and we'd lost a load of stuff. And, and I don't know that I would have written The Ocean at the End of the Lane with such enthusiasm mm-hmm. if I hadn't had to go through all of those rewrites mm-hmm. on The Doctor's Wife because the joy for me of The Ocean at the End of the Lane is there weren't rewrites. Right. Oh, you was in control of everything. I was completely my baby. And the fact that I started writing a short story that then seemed to be going long, and I figured I was probably writing a novelette, Mm. and then I kept going, and it was now a novella. actually finished it, typed it up, and did a word count. Mm. But I realized that I'd written a novel. Nobody nobody was waiting for it. Nobody cared about it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted it. It was my story that I'd started for my wife, which is great. Mm-hmm. And that, in many ways, is the thing that I kind of wind up taking back into fiction with me. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing that I miss, the thing that I have up to a point in comics, the thing that I miss in, um, in, in all film and TV is just the power of because I say so. You know, right. why is why is she wearing green? Because I say so. Why does she do this? Because I say so. And why does it look like this? Why did this happen? And I really like just after after all of the compromise, the the deals, the this is, the that's, the being on the phone, the the rewrites, the madness of television or whatever, which sometimes produces amazing things. Mm. It's very nice to go back into your own world where you're going, well, I'm in here, I'm closing the doors, I'm locking the windows, I'm putting on the stereo, and from here on out, this is mine. Nobody gets to tell me what happens. Nobody Nobody even gets to negotiate. Nobody gets to say, we can't find a, you know, in, 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 in the book, you you've written a seven-foot-tall black actor, and we can't find a seven-foot-tall black actor, So, but we found this absolutely fantastic uh, four-foot-five Chinese actor. Um, <laughs> that sounds like me, excuse me. <laughs> exactly. You also never find... Um, you know, and you, and you never get the, the... just the practicalities of making things, mm-hmm. where... You know, if you're writing, if you're making, if you're making a TV show, you're going to wind up at the end of the day going, ah, you know, that guy wasn't very good, so let's cut him out. The lines were great, but the actor wasn't very good, and so we're going to have to lose him. 
and we'll edit around him and we'll it's kind of ruthless and so I love just the absolute power yeah. I love the fact that when it's just me and the words, I'm God. Yeah, I was going to say, but I'm glad you said it. <laughs> so you want to be God. Um, well, when you talk, I, so I suddenly want to ask all different questions. But um, it's the, okay, the spontan. it seems like you're just addicted to this spontaneity of the dream. You know, being able to change and merge and um, uh, there's this great freedom in your writing like that. Can you tell, I suppose you write your dreams, but tell us a little bit about your dreams. I, my dreams, actually, I, I, I tend to write dreams when there's amazing imagery mm -hmm. that I steal. And very, very, very occasionally will write down dreams if I wake up and I go, that's a story. Mm -hmm. I can steal that. But my dreams mostly, uh, are, I used to have terrible nightmares. Mm -hmm. And then I started writing Sandman, and whenever I'd have a terrible nightmare, I would wake up really happy because I would write it down. Material. I was stealing it. And then the, the, the terrible dreams sort of, you know, mostly went away at that point. My dreams, I tend to be in huge houses filled with books. Oh, okay. uh, and, and things that happen in my dreams tend to happen in these houses and all of the houses you know it's like one huge house that's every house I've ever lived in I am it's this kind of peculiar gormenghast mm -hmm. of everywhere I've ever been I for my illustration now that you've given me the image that's going to be it it has to be yeah if I can yeah. if you want if to give can. notes yeah if I can that's a big order okay <laughs> but um and I can't remember that I already asked you, but what do you think? Do you think that your religious upbringing influ How do you think that influenced your imagination? I think what influenced the imagination most was the fact that as a kid, I felt outside of religion, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, with everybody else I knew was kind of on the inside of a religion. But for me, especially at the point where I'm, you know, a little Jewish kid with parents who are Jewish Scientologists, and I'm at a high church, Church of England school, at which I'm, you know, far and away, first in the class, and getting the highest or, you know, the highest thing on, on the religious studies. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's, it's all another beautiful fiction. It's, it's like going, all of these things are ways that people choose to see the world. Yeah. So when I was being taught my bar mitzvah when I was 11 or 12, going up to London to stay with very, very religious Jewish relatives where a, a, a local cantor would come in each day to teach me. He, what he wanted to do, whatever he wanted to teach me, what I loved was the fact that his head was filled with old Jewish stories and ones that were really, really you know, it wasn't until I was in my 20s and talking to people that I realized how arcane mm. and how obscure the stuff that I was being taught was. But what I loved about it was, and it wasn't even that he was teaching me this. What he was meant to be teaching me was my bonnets for stuff. Mm. Um, but what I loved was getting him off the subject because mm. I could get him off the subject onto, onto myth mm. and onto, onto stories. And that for me was, was just a joy. Mm. And I would soak it up. Wow. But I always soaked it up, you know, as if I was standing one step back mm -hmm. from it all. You were seeing it as a story and he was seeing it as, yeah. 
his belief. That's true. But I'm Absolutely. wondering, yeah, I'm wondering now, because obviously religion is on the wane, but I think, I mean, whether you were outside religion or you were in it, it definitely enriched your imagination. Do you think that the sense that we're not, many of us are not receiving religious upbringing, is, is, is our um, culture, um, our literature impoverished by that just lack of knowledge? It's like our lack of knowledge of history. In America, you said their lack of memory. I don't know. It may be. I mean, it's it's really interesting for me watching the the lack of understanding of myth, mm-hmm. the way that that impoverishes literature. Yeah. Because it means that if you go and try and read anything sort of 15th to 18th century, mm-hmm. there will be references to Greek and Roman myth sure. in there that are obscure enough that, you know, the stuff that I'll read, and I, I go. I have to go and Google this, yeah. and I go, and I know my stuff, and I know my myth. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've got my Lompriere's classical dictionary. Mm-hmm. What would the people who don't think of this? And and you're going, okay, there's a whole world out there in which literature is slowly becoming, you know, chunks of literature become invisible. Right. Because we do not have the cultural reference to read them. And, uh, you know, that's that, that's always really interesting and weird. Literature changes and life changes and the world changes. And sometimes literature changes in ways that it wasn't, nobody ever thought. Bill Gibson, William Gibson, yeah. wrote a wonderful book called Neuromancer. And the opening line is, the sky above the port was the color of a television tuned to a dead channel. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that is in 1984, when that was published, that describes a sort of weird black and white fuzzy sky, mist, grayness, no color in the sky whatsoever. But somebody who picks up the book now and reads The Sky Was the Color of a Television Tuned to to a Dead Channel thinks, oh, blue sky. (laughs) Perfect blue sky, no clouds. Well, the fake has become the real now, yes. Absolutely. Uh. And, but, you know, and you go, go forward 100 years from now or 50 years from now and somebody's talking about television tuned to a dead channel and their first question is, so what's a television? It's kind yeah. of like a computer. Okay, so how, how was it tuned to a dead channel? What does that mean? What color is that? And they go, I don't know, maybe it's black. You go, mm-hmm. oh, okay, cool, black sky. And, and whatever you're getting, what you get from the literature mm-hmm is not necessarily what it was meant to, what the person who wrote it thought. Mm-hmm. And that, I love the fact that that can change, and that can change through the years, through the generations. Mm-hmm. We do not read. You know, we may be, we may be reading Don Quixote. Yeah. But, you know, there's that beautiful story by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, mm-hmm. uh, Pierre Menard's Don Quixote. Okay, yes, but yes. Pierre Menard writes Don Quixote, and it's the same novel, but, you know, people are actually go, well, it's actually a better novel. <laughs> because it's kind of more postmodern, and it's, it's it's deeper, even though it has the same words. Um, but there's, the truth is, you know, none of us can read Cervantes' Don Quixote and really understand it or yeah. understand everything, because it will always be filled with illusions that would have meant an awful lot in 1620 that mean nothing to us now. Sometimes it's nice to uh, absorb things like music, though. I mean, in a way, like Joyce, you know, so many illusions. And I, sometimes I just take pleasure that I don't understand everything. But no, we, we've lost I, I, something. No, I, I agree. I, there, are, there are glorious grace notes. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned something and I went, wanted to refer to it, but I can't remember now. Say, for instance, today, you're not, um, your most recent project. What yeah. are, um, what are some, uh, what is um, an obstacle that you're dealing with right now? Well, the biggest obstacle is the fact that right now, if my wife wants to do anything, she's going to hand me the baby. <laughs> that is a very, very real obstacle. You know, we, we're, we're sort of planning to get some childcare while we're out here, but we don't have it right now. So it's one or other of us. Mm-hmm. Either the baby is asleep or one or other is looking after it, which is great for feeling like a human being and being part of the human race and great for joy. Mm-hmm. I get so much joy from the kid. Terrible for getting work done. And the other barrier for me is I'm going to write about Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. And Terry was my friend. And this is the first time I will have written about him since he died. And he died about 10 months ago. Mm-hmm. And I haven't written about him. I, I, you know, I was fortunate in that I'd written a piece before he died that was there and that everybody read and reprinted and stuff. And that was good. But now I'm going to have to take the grief and write about the grief and but it's not going to be a sad piece it's going to be really funny and it's going to be mm-hmm. about who terry was and who i was in 1985 1986 wow. um, when this book was written how how we became friends how what i what i saw when i read the book and how in a weird way artists have a wonderful thing that you know we are given a peculiar form of immortality because I could sit down and read Mort mm-hmm. and I got to spend three hours with my friend. Oh, you can time travel. Mm. Yeah, you're time, but you're not just time traveling, you're spending time with them in mm-hmm. some way. David Bowie is dead, mm-hmm. but I can play a David Bowie album and he's still mm-hmm. singing to me and he's singing mm-hmm. to me now if I listen to him. And I think there's there is magic in that. You know, you don't necessarily write, you don't write fiction for the ages. You write fiction for now because nobody knows what the ages is going to be like. But there was definitely a point in my 30s or 40s where I would think, okay, I'm, I'm carving my name on the wall. I'm writing Neil was here on the wall. And 100 years from now, they'll still know Neil was here. Even if I'm a footnote, even if I'm, I'm, I'm two lines in a dictionary of, of forgotten authors, mm. I'll be here. Now, I've actually gone sort of further around than that. Now, I actually don't know if it means anything at all to carve your name. And I'm not even sure that the wall matters. I think what matters is being human and coming here and doing stuff. Um. But I do love the fact that, you know, when I go the way of Terry Pratchett, when I go the way of David Bowie, mm. when I go the way of my dad, people who don't know me can pick up my books and they won't meet me mm-hmm. but they'll meet for an hour or for five hours or for ten we'll be together we'll be having a conversation yeah well, no that that is beautiful it's not but as you say it's not so much in the objects of the the wall surviving it's that moment of communication exactly yeah. Um, no, so that's that's really beautiful. I want to ask you because I know I don't know what the time is like. I'm enjoying this so much, but I don't know what <laughs> what your well, schedule is. I, what I do know is that we've been we've been doing this for 58 minutes and 40 yes, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I squeezed extra out of you. But there is this. Um, 
sorry. Uh, there are these questions that the American Writers Museum making us. Okay, let's so see. Those and we'll do those. Yes. Okay. Um, oh, we sort of spoke about this. If we already said it, you can go. What are your views on the future of literature and with all the current conflicts, the future of our our future on the planet? Well, I think we, we talked about the future sort of the future. Yeah, we is, did, yeah. I, I worry. I worry about the conflicts. I worry, you know, we're in a world right now in which 60 million people are refugees. Mm. You know, the population of England. Oh. It's the equivalent of, actually, the population of the UK. It's mm. the equivalent of somebody, you know, aliens came down and took the UK away. Mm -hmm. And the entire population just had to find a place on the globe. And... It That's a story get, there. There is. And it doesn't seem like it's getting smaller. You know, mm -hmm. it's popular for, for politicians. It's, it's, there is always more glory in winning a war or marching off to war than there is in avoiding war. But war, avoiding war is much better for everybody, except possibly the people who sell the guns. It, you know, it, it's better for the world. I worry about global warming. I worry about climate change. I worry that we've actually just gone beyond the tipping point. There was there was a period in there of, you know, 20, 30 years when we could have scaled back and we could have fixed things. And I'm now looking around going, okay, I don't think we're going to. And I think things are going weird and I think they're going to be weirder. It was 50 degrees in the Arctic on Christmas Day. Uh. There's craziness in there. So, but on the other hand, I have a four-month-old child. And I want him to grow up in a world that is hospitable and safe, a world in which there's food, a world in which you can travel. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I worry that he will grow up into the last chapter of David Mitchell's book, The Bone Clocks. Oh, well, yes. And, you know, which, which felt very likely, it felt mm -hmm. a little bit too likely. Mm. Uh, and I hope, I hope he doesn't. Well, not as long as we have stories, you know. I think that it will become difficult, but uh, we'll have a link anyway to um, what it was like. I hope. It, I, I don't I, mean I, to be. That sounds bleak. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's, it's bleak, but it's honest. And yeah. you know, there is a level on which I wonder for a kid a hundred years from mm -hmm. now picking up a children's book from the 1960s with elephants and tigers in it. Mm. You know, I hope that they'll, they'll know what elephants and tigers are. I hope these things aren't going to be mythical. Yeah. I hope they won't have wandered off into story. Wow. Okay, sorry, and I'm just winding this up here. So what are your views on the establishment of the American Writers Museum and the importance of the humanities? And again, we sort of touched on that. But I, I think a writers museum is, is incredibly important because writers are the most boring people in the world doing the most boring thing in the world, <laughs> which is we, we sit in rooms on our own and, and make things up and write it down. It's not even a spectator sport. We are, as, as anybody who has looked at writer at photographs on the back of, of book jackets knows, mm -hmm. you know, the most interesting writers, the, the best we can ever come up with is going like this. <laughs> I, you know, writers are dull, and yet we change words. Mm -hmm. oh, change, change worlds. Wo and we change worlds. Yeah. And, and the changing words changes worlds. 
Exactly. But I don't think, I have an issue with that thing about uh, writers being dull because that's just the physical shell, right? Exactly. I mean, they're going yeah, everywhere. We are, we are gloriously dull on the outside. Mm -hmm. And on the inside, we contain, we contain worlds. And here, let me read you something else. Okay. Because it's something that's going to be going. I was okay. telling you about the, um, my book, the, the View from the Cheap Seats, which okay. is the oh, new yeah. collection of yes. nonfiction. This is something that I wrote for a book of photographs mm -hmm. of authors. Okay, yeah. These are not our faces. This is not what we look like. Do you think Gene Wolfe looks like his photograph in this book, or Jane Yolen, or Peter Straum, or Diana Wynne-Jones? Not so. They're wearing play faces to fool you. But the play faces come off when the writing begins. Frozen in black and silver for you now, these are simply masks. We who lie for a living are wearing our liar faces, false faces made to deceive the unwary. We must be, for if you believe these photographs, we look just like everyone else. Protective coloration, that's all it is. Read the books, sometimes you can catch sight of us in there. We look like gods and fools and bards and queens, singing worlds into existence, conjuring something from nothing, juggling words into all the patterns of night. Read the books. That's when you see us properly, naked priestesses and priests of forgotten religions, our skins glistening with scented oils, scarlet blood dripping down from our hands, bright birds flying out from our open mouths. Perfect we are, and beautiful in the fire's golden light. There was a story I was told as a child about a little girl who peeked in through a writer's window one night and saw him writing. He'd taken his false face off to write and had hung it behind the door for he wrote with his real face on and she saw him and he saw her and from that day to this nobody has ever seen the little girl again. Since then, writers have looked like other people even when they write, though sometimes their lips move and sometimes they stare into space longer and more intently than anything that isn't a cat. But their words describe their real faces, the ones they wear underneath. This is why people who encounter writers are rarely satisfied by the wholly inferior person that they meet. I thought you'd be taller, or older, or younger, or prettier, or wiser, they tell us in words or wordlessly. This is not what I look like, they tell them. This is not my face. That's that's wonderful. I think if I I could maybe would it are you printing that in that book? But it would be nice to use a little bit maybe in the introduction to that's what this seems like if it's possible. Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. it's beautiful. I think it's a, it's a, and if you don't mind, I I know I'm only trying to approach the image of the writer, but I do try to do very uh, imaginative um, portraits. Like I just did Edgar Carrot drowning himself. It was one of his dreams. So I do, and I'll try to I'll do my best with what you've given me. I know it's only the shell or the mask, but um, I know uh, it's incomplete. But but the joy of, of, of being an artist mm -hmm. is it's not about the outside. You get to draw the inside, too. Yes, it's I hope. Focus. Yeah, yes, I hope. Um, so anyway, getting back to these last two, I know I'm squeezing okay. time out of you. Okay, which, which, these are quick ones. Which one or two American books or plays would you yourself recommend to the foreign leaders? They phrase these questions really weird. Wow, oh, that is a strange question. Um, it is! <laughs> I have to tell is. them to change it. <laughs> I, I would love it if all foreign leaders read Gravity's Rainbow 
because I don't think you could read Gravity's Rainbow and come out the same person. I would love them to read Catch-22. Okay. Joseph Heller's yeah. immortal comedy of war and pain mm -hmm. and bureaucracy. And I think perhaps it would be a good idea for them all, for the entire world, to have read the story of Bartleby the Scrivener. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's a good selection. You know what Michelle Faber said? Dr. Seuss. <laughs> that too. And, you know, the, the thing is, the trouble with asking a writer for a few books is, is you can keep going. You know, I, could add, I would add Charlotte's Web. So if you want to understand right. humanity and empathy, read Charlotte's Web. I can, mm -hmm. you, know, you just want to keep... And, and anyway... Okay, yes. no, those are good answers. Okay, who in your childhood, for example, parent or teacher, encouraged you to read books, and which one or two books do you remember? Well, you sort of said that, but which parent or teacher? Um, um, you know, my, my mother encouraged mm -hmm. me to read incredibly. I remember the excitement of her. She would read to me, and she would order books from the bookshop, mm -hmm. and I remember the excitement of going down a week later or two weeks later and hearing our book was in and getting Hiawatha or the children's Mikado, or whatever she, she thought she should read me, and looking at pictures and the joy of, of discovering that I could read by myself. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Okay, last one. Okay, which books by, the, by writers of the other G8 countries, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, oh, you know what they are, okay, have been most important to you as a writer? Oh, um, that is a wonderful question. Hang on, I'm going I'm to... Google for the G8, G8 countries list just so that I've got it in front of me. Oh, just, you know, any country. I don't know why they're so... I don't know. It seems weird why it only has to be G8, but... It is. Okay. Um, Canadian would be Robertson Davis's The Deptford Trilogy. France, I think... I, I, this may sound silly, but probably The Count of Monte Cristo. All right. Um, yeah, no, it sounds silly at all. It's, it's just right. such a... It's, it's a book that just still plays in my head. Yeah. Um, from when I was a child. It's a classic. Um, the, um, for Japan, it's either Legends or it's Murakami. Okay. Uh, for yeah. Russia, it would definitely be The Master and Margarita, which, okay. um, by Bulgakov. For Italy, I, I think probably The Decameron. The United Kingdom... Oh, um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Okay, Dick. yeah. Yeah, they're all classics. Yeah, yeah they're not the... You, maybe people wouldn't guess because of the fantasy elements, but yeah, wonderful. Okay, so um, Italy? Did we say Italy? No. Uh, I said the Decameron. Oh, but, yes, but that's actually, right. Actually, I, I would probably... I, I, maybe the Inferno. Okay. I, I love the Inferno so much. Mm -hmm. the, uh, it's so mean-spirited. Mm -hmm. I think it's... Okay, so that's, um, I, did we do it all? Um, Germany. No, you mentioned... Uh, uh, let's see. Is the good soldier Schweik German or... Um, yes, um, I thought so. It is... Um, I think so. Okay, um, all right. You can, okay, that works. Thank you so much for your time. Um, You're so welcome. Uh, Thank you for... It, that was really fun. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Terry Clark. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. 
Our song Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.